Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber. Today, you'll be listening to a fantastic conversation with Jeremy Miller, um, who is the author of wonderful book, Sticky Branding. We're going to be covering some really fascinating topics, all of which are going to be of value to business owners and leaders through this very difficult year that we're all experiencing. So without further ado, here's the conversation with Jeremy. Hello and welcome to the Halftime Orange podcast with me, Brenton Weber. Um, Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Jeremy Miller, brand strategist, keynote speaker, best-selling author. So welcome to the show, Jeremy. How are you today? I am fantastic and thanks for having me here today, Brenton. It's such a pleasure. That's cool. And first of all, thank you very much for returning because last week we had a go at this and um, I don't think I could stop coughing for about 10 minutes. I had a bit of a cold. It's not COVID. Um, I'm glad you're feeling better. Oh, mate, thank you for your graciousness in coming back and putting up with with me. So, uh, yeah, appreciate that. Um, To give our listeners a bit of an understanding of who you are and your journey, which I Last time we spoke, you called it a squiggly line to where you got to. So how about you, you share that with us? Sure. Well, I think like all of us, we, we don't necessarily w- end up where we are today with predictable outcomes. It's, uh, yes, some of us go to school. Some of us have this destined world. But at least for me, when I, I, I grew up, I didn't know that I was going to be in branding and marketing. And I didn't get into this through the traditional path. I came into this world as a salesperson who had lost their competitive advantage. I uh, uh, joined my family's business in 2004 after the the tech-wrecking recessions of the the early 2000s. And our business didn't recover as we expected it to. And I remember uh, just going through that that first year just being such an awful experience. And it got so bad, we were in the pits doing pit time, which is dedicated cold calling every single week just to try and get the business going. And it just didn't work. And when we took a step back and started looking at our customer and looking at our business, we realized we had been disrupted. And, and it was in that moment that I realized I didn't have a sales problem. I had a branding problem. But I was a sales guy. So I started studying everything that I could get my hands on and implementing. And I discovered that this world of branding and marketing is absolutely fascinating. And I reinvented and rebranded my family's business. And my customers took notice. And they started engaging me. And it's just been this ongoing journey since. It's been 15 years of just going deeper and deeper into this topic. And so tell us about the family business. What is the family business? So the family business was a uh, recruiting company. My parents started it in 1989 as an IT staffing firm, and I came on board in 2004. Now, the the, the whole journey of, of how it evolved is, is, a, is a more drawn-out story, but the business, I actually sold it in uh, 2013, and that was part of my succession plan. I, uh, I realized uh, earlier on that I wanted to chase this idea of branding and and marketing. So I had spun off a consulting practice inside the family business to form Sticky Branding. And then I packaged and sold uh, the business. And I used the commission of that to write my first book, Sticky Branding. Cool. It's a a great book. Um, Can you give us, for those those listeners who haven't had a a look at it or reviewed it, can you give us a bit of a a synopsis of, uh, of, of the book? Well, it, it kind of ties back to this origin story where when I came in, so they'll give you the, the longer part of the story. So that, that first year 
we tried everything. We couldn't get sales to activate, and it got so bad. We were just dealing with terrible customers that uh, that we didn't want to work with, that were difficult, that were unprofitable. And, but we were just sitting there smiling and dialing and not getting any success. And I remember sitting down with my parents at the end of that first year and saying, if this is what it's like to be in a family business, I can't do this. This is just brutal. I'm going to go back to the software industry and, and do an easy job. And this is when I probably got the best advice of my life, which was uh, my dad said to me, it's not about the business you've built. It's about the business you're building. What are we going to build next? And it was in that moment that we took a step back and we studied our customers. We studied our market. We studied everything around us. And we realized we had this branding problem. And what we ended up doing was transforming our business. We were being disrupted at that point by, uh, well, 2004, 2005, you think about it, LinkedIn was two years old, Facebook was a year old, Google was five years old, but it was already, we were at the sharp end of the spear, it was already changing our business. But being this entrepreneur, being a salesperson, trying to learn all this stuff, I was reading everything I could get my hands on. But the problem I had was all of the books were about big companies like Apple, Nike, and Starbucks. I was a small business. I had a marketing budget, just not a vast one. So my question at that time was, how does a smaller mid-sized company grow a remarkable brand or what I describe as a sticky brand? And so that is the journey that I went through in my family business. And then when I sold it, I said, what would be the book I wish I had back then? So I took my story and then I profiled 150 companies from around the world. Um, and these were companies in the United States and Canada, all the way up to New Zealand. I profiled Icebreaker and, and interviewed Jeremy Moon back uh, for this as well. And I wanted to know how do small and mid-sized privately held businesses challenge the giants of their industry to grow a remarkable brand, one where their customers know them, like them, trust them, and ultimately choose them first. So really, how do you make your brand that ultimate sales machine where people are constantly buying from you? And it was in that research that I came up with 12 and a half principles. And that was what Sticky Branding the book is. It's that branding playbook for small and mid-sized companies, companies like yours and mine, mm. that want to grow remarkable brands and don't have Apple or Amazon's uh, marketing budget. Well, it's a book that companies like me and a lot of those that I work with definitely need. Um, and to break it down into 12 useful steps, or did you say 12 and a half useful steps? Twelve and a half. You gotta have marketing in your book titles, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm I'm super um, intrigued what the half one is, but um, I'm guessing I should really read the entire book to get that. Probably the most important one you should read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's the, uh, the the half principle is choose your brand. That branding is a choice. Fundamentally, at its core, the companies that grow the best brands are making a choice to do it well. They are making a choice to uh, to invest in themselves, in their people, in their products. You think of that old Steve Jobs story where when they were making the, uh, the Mac, the first Macintosh, they all signed the interior and painted the interior. And that was that lesson from his father, which was you paint the parts of the, the, the fence, the parts of the cabinet that can't be seen because that's craftsmanship. Yeah. And I think that that, that kind of care is ultimately what creates a great brand. And I, I see this in my latest book, Brand New Name. The companies that take the most time and effort to name something set themselves up for success. They are making choices. And it's in those choices that you actually create all the conditions that lead to the sales and marketing successes that we all want. 
Branding to me, there's so much crossover with what I do um, in customer experience. And you talk about very much when you're when you're sharing us with your journey, you mentioned that it started off with really understanding the customer. Now, I have people that have actually said to me, you know, Brenton, what you do sounds an awful lot like branding. And those people are usually people who are, who are very focused on branding. So where, where do you see the parallels between branding and CX? Are they part of the same? Do they work hand in glove? Are they the same thing under different names? Because I certainly believe it's about creating advocates, and I'm not sure how you could create an advocate without making your brand and the brand experience sticky. Right. So I think customer experience and CX uh, is truly a pillar of branding. Where I would put branding, and, and this is, I, I would say I am different in this world of branding and, and the other thought leaders in space, but to me, branding is strategy. You are making very key choices of where do you play, how do you win, how do you want to be known, and what are the strategic choices, we'll come back to in a minute, but it's what are the pillars by which you create those conditions that you win. And when you can build that strategy and become crystal clear on how are you going to grow and how are you going to serve your customers, then everything becomes clear and straightforward. And at that point, customer experience is so important because what I think the, the true outcome of a sticky brand is, is when your customers know you, like you, and trust you, they will choose you first. And if that CX is off, if it creates dissonance, if it doesn't reflect the inside of the outside, you have lost before you've started. Yeah, somebody somebody in a um, LinkedIn discussion that I was part of, uh, I think about two weeks ago, they were saying that the brand, you can think of it as the personality. If you think of the business as an entity, the actual, how authentic are they? What do they represent? How do you feel about that as a, as a metaphor, as a simile? So your brand is a personality. I think that short circuits what a brand is. Because if you think of... Uh, Let's take the two words. So one of the things that we're dealing with right now, Brenton, is that branding as a topic has an identity crisis. And everyone puts their own spin on it depending on what they're selling. So if you're a logo or design guy, you're like, branding is about what everything looks like. And if you are in the content space, you'll talk about influencers and whatever it is. They, they, they spin it that way. But let's just separate the two. A brand is, a, is a, essentially a lagging indicator. It's what uh, you have done. So Jeff Bezos defined a brand as uh, what your customers say about you when you're not in the room. So if that's the case, then that's based on the customer experience. What experiences have they had with you? What and that, and that, But the problem is if you're a fast-moving startup, that can be a, a, a shifting experience because somebody who worked with you a year ago and had one experience and now you've evolved and doubled in size and have all this new systems – your products and services could have shifted. and But that brand was where you were at that moment with that customer. So you have this lagging component, but your brand is what the experience was. For me, branding is strategy. It's where you will go. It's making the choices of how you're going to grow your business, how you're going to create a customer experience, how you're going to fundamentally make an impact. And an impact could be seen in revenue, or it could be, if you're, say, a not-for-profit, in the, the, the truest sense of the term, the kind of impact you're going to have in a community or a stakeholder group. I see. So, so there, there used to be... CX, Highly nerdy. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, CX is an incredibly nerdy subject as well. Um, I think mm. a lot of people get, uh, sometimes it can be a little bit of uh, business lingo bingo um, that goes on, or certainly people see that. For sure. Um, the current definition of CX has changed quite a lot in the in the last few years, and previously, um, it used to be described as every thought, feeling, experience um, that somebody has with a brand while they, or with a company, while they are trying to fulfill a need. So so, so with that in mind, and, and, and now we've evolved further, where customer experience looks at the entire ecosystem, mm-hmm. because actually there's quite a company-centric way of looking at things when you're thinking it's all about the touch points with the brand. So, the, so CX has developed into this. It's much more about the thoughts, feelings, and experiences that everybody has with every company and every part of the ecosystem from when they start thinking about fulfilling a need to when they actually fulfill that need and continue. Branding has got to be so key in both of those. So where do you see the feedback loops possible with with these two um, disciplines? I think they're so overlapping. Um, It's what you said before, that the two are going for similar outcomes. And I think it's what we're and and as an entrepreneur, I'm getting. Let, let me just take a different lens on this. As an entrepreneur, if you're talking about me to me regarding CX branding strategy, all like it, like let's just simple it down into what are we talking about? Well, I want to grow my business and I want to delight my customers so that they come back again and again, and I want to do this in a way that is profitable and repeatable. And if we take the BS and the CX and the branding and all that kind of lingo jingo off of it, then why don't we just talk to how can we help a business do that? Because what I think was happening in this conversation is it's the identities of consultants. It's like identity politics a little bit, but it's like it's like identity marketing that oh, my point of view is better than your point. But if I look at my customers, and my customers are predominantly mid-sized, privately held businesses, two-thirds of them are family businesses. you got owner-operators that are in their 40s and 50s, and they don't care. They, what they care about is how do I keep and retain my staff? How do I grow my business? How do I go from 20 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue? And how do I build up a management team? And how do I do great marketing? And how do I keep the sales funnel full? They've got very practical, simple questions. And if I think the thing that that would be most helpful for so many uh, of our kind, consultants and thought leaders, because what we do is really important work, but it's we need to bring it back that lens of, what is our customer actually trying to do? And then how can we speak in their language? Um, because what you're saying is absolutely true. How do we create a customer experience that is consistent, distinct, and that will drive someone through a sales funnel to a purchase and then through uh, a, a, an engagement cycle where they install or implement, use, and become advocates? And that journey no matter what your discipline is, is the same, but it it allows us, I think when we take the the lingo out, it allows us to think much more clearly about how we have impact. I think you're so right. I mean, I I brought it up because it's one of those discussions that I get dragged into online occasionally. And I see that it, it is very much that. It tends to be a discussion all about ourselves and about validating our discipline ahead of everything else, whereas it's impossible to do either of those things well without 
working together without making sure that it's a united, non-jarring experience for the customer as they understand what the brand's all about, envisage what it may do for them, and then when they're actually engaging with them, whether or not that is a, it's authentic to what their expectations may have been. And the thing that I think is so important and why having the outside perspective and the models and all that is so important is the thing that most customers lack is that insight and clarity. They, 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 they can't see the forest from the trees. Like they, they are stuck in the middle of it. They see their business. They're overwhelmed. They're frustrated. I think of the term of homeostasis, that the organization is designed to keep them where it's at. And what, what you can do by bringing forward, say, a customer experience lens is to be able to gain a different view of what's going on and how you can affect change. And this to me becomes what's so helpful is that by talking about the customer journey and then talking about how you can have direct impact at critical moments, well, that leads to business strategy. That leads to strategic choices. That leads you to what truly what I think strategy is all about is deciding what you will do And then strategy execution is making sure you don't do the things you said you're not going to do. Yeah, exactly. You you talk about the customer journey a lot, and clearly that's something that would be very close to mine and my peers' hearts. But what I see in the industry, in my industry, and I might upset a few friends here, but we very much focus on really beautiful, pretty, elaborate customer journey maps. And as you alluded to, there um, there isn't a desire from the leaders to have pretty customer journey maps. They don't mean anything to them. And so sometimes they lose faith in what they're going to achieve. I think often just simplifying it down so that you can identify the key pain points to make it smoother. So it's a constant process of improvement Mm. based on the understanding of the customer journey and and the understanding of the customer. How detailed do you get into with your customer journey maps? So uh, typically, when actually when we, we use journey maps in a simplified version in, in our strategic planning process. So when we build, uh, say, your priorities or your big rocks, when you're defining what are the priorities that are going to affect your business over the next 12 months, we will link it to a journey map. And it looks like a Gantt chart, but you have from awareness, uh, education, conversion, implementation, use, uh, advocacy. So you take those six or seven steps that are relevant to the customer. And then when you look at the big rocks, you ask the question, what is the work that we're doing? How are we affecting the, the customer journey? And the, the reason that, that I do that is we tend to focus on lead generation or customer. We tend to be weighted one way or the other with our thinking because that's where our values are and simply becoming aware of how you're affecting things uh, becomes really powerful. But to answer your question, in my view of a journey map goes this way. The number one question I ask when I'm looking at a buyer journey from a branding context, at least, are what are the points of dissonance? And so what I, I, the reason I ask for that is when somebody is looking at, at you at a critical way, whether that's walking into a retail store, coming to your website, going to a demo, it's when that exp- the online experience or the offline experience don't connect or when it doesn't fit their expectations, it causes them to pause, withdraw, pull back. Those become very measurable points where we can improve the experience, 
But more importantly, they tend to be the most important points. So rather than trying to fix everything, fix the things that break the sales funnel. Love that. It, it, it really resonates with what we've been doing at Halftime Orange. I mean, regardless of the number of stages we're looking at, we have what we've called a universal customer journey map. Mm-hmm. And it looks at from the point of assessment right the way through the various points through the first half, which is acquisition, and the second half, which is retention, which ends with advocacy. Now, I think I'm one of maybe a handful of customer experience professionals who has actually got my own customer journey map. And I found it so valuable because although we were delivering great customer experiences to a handful of foundation clients, we were not growing. We looked at our customer journey map and it was clear that the assess phase, the very first phase was the big red light, that point of dissonance. And that's really where we've been focusing on. And it's funny, you find that biggest pain point, you do something about it, you strategize and you implement. And as long as it is, and, and, and make it guaranteeing that it is, um, it lines up with your brand, I guess you would call it, I mean, in your lingo, then, um, then you can start seeing meaningful improvements as you push people through that funnel. Mm. Um, then when you start realize, when, when you've helped, helped to solve that pain point, you move on to the next one. And we're finding that's so valuable for, um, especially for founding companies, where we do that across existing accepted customer journeys. Um, a good example would be, and we weren't involved in this, but we on, on one of our first podcasts, we interviewed a lovely guy called Matt Lee, who has started a company called Oasis, um, Oasis with a C in the middle. Um, and what they do is they've realized that the biggest pain point with air travel is luggage, taking your luggage to the airport, picking your luggage up. So they've set up this very accessible, very affordable to all types of travelers, a pickup drop-off service. They're al- they are able to upgrade tickets. They're able to call you while you're five hours away from the airport and tell you, you, you can wait an extra two hours. So what they've done is they've provided a now just-in-time service delivery of tourists, um, of consumers to the airport so that they can handle them in a much better way. There's less of that scrum that people have. Now, they got to that purely by looking at the overall ecosystem of the, um, the, the, the customer journey and finding out where the biggest pain points are. Is that the sort of thing that you, you're doing, but just with a different, slightly different language than we do? I would be more high level than you. Uh, so this, I think what you're describing is, is absolutely fascinating. And also kudos to you, because I think your IP leads to a more scalable business. Like to me, what you descri- are describing is the kind of strategy and thinking that gets me all excited, because now what you are building as an entrepreneur is a valuable, teachable, repeatable uh, process. And in that, that's the heart of how, as service providers, we transition from ourselves to a business. So, um, so that I, I really do comment and commend you on that. My the, the way I summarize my core work is uh, well, it, well, and it's funny. Everything changed as of this year with the coronavirus. But the the big questions that we really wrestle with and have consistently wrestled with is in the brand strategy or business strategy of where do you play. How do you win and how are you going to grow the company in a strategic, deliberate way? Uh, what changed, though, 
was the speed and anxiety caused by the pandemic this year. Mm. And it forced me at least to reinvent my entire business. We actually reinvented sticky branding in the span of a week. And so the positioning today of what we do is largely grouped on this idea of crisis marketing, which is really two strategic questions. First, how do you recover the customers and revenue taken by COVID-19? And then second, how do you slingshot your business out of this crisis so that it's stronger than ever? So we are looking at the, the customer journeys could be a tool that we use, but what we're really looking at is the business to say, okay, where do we play? How do we win? How do we want to grow? Well, this is very difficult to have any conversations this year without talking about COVID. Um, and before we get on, I was going to talk to you about the crisis management because it's something that I've shared with Francine, my marketing um, genius, um, I like to call her, um, she, uh, about the crisis marketing and the crisis management. For those of our listeners that haven't um, had a look at your 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 LinkedIn profile, and we'll, we'll talk about that at the end because I'd love people to connect with you. Can you give us some key tips that we should be thinking about as business owners below that level that you've talked about now, practical tips that we can all look into our businesses today because there's two times to do this. It was before the crisis and now, yeah. um, and any further days that we delay are days that we're losing traction and and um, competitiveness with 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 our peers who are leading the way well I think the the neat thing today is okay the first five months of the pandemic were terrifying jaw-dropping awful um, and they they triggered a whole set of issues within me and I can come back to that in a minute but I think for today, as we go into the fall, what do we have to look forward to? I believe today is the greatest entrepreneurial opportunity of our lifetime and probably a moment we will never see again because you look at the conditions that we have right now. Uh, our customers want us to succeed. You can innovate like never before. If somebody says, well, you don't do that, you can say COVID and they go, okay, cool. You've got this permission to try things. Your customers want you to succeed. You've got access to funding and all the, pl the playing fields totally leveled. All the big guys, everybody is, doing the, is facing the exact same challenges that you are. And so the companies who act fast and adapt fastest have the competitive advantage. And so to your point, if you hadn't started already, Okay, fine. I get that. Most of us have reacted, and but today, it really comes into this. Take that slingshot metaphor. Winston Churchill said, "Never waste a good crisis." We're still in a crisis. We don't know if we're going to face a second wave. We have no idea what's going to happen this fall. We're definitely not seeing anything go back to normal anytime soon. So, this is our conditions right now. How do you use this opportunity to slingshot your company out of that? And so that's the framing that I think as entrepreneurs we need uh, because if you don't use this, it's not going to be uh, – it's not going to work for you. We, we talk a lot at Halftime Orange. We've, we've, uh, we, we've, we're proponents of James Dodkins, um, ACXS, um, su Successful Customer Outcome Model. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it starts – trying to identify at the beginning, what does a successful customer outcome actually look like? Because the idea is if you're delivering great successful customer outcomes, then your successful business outcomes like sales growth will kind of look after themselves. So with that in mind and COVID, 
how much do you think COVID has affected what a successful customer outcome looks like to people? Let's start that off. My, my belief is that at the very base level now, we need to feel safe from COVID when we're dealing with companies and engaging with them. I think, well, so let's take the first part of this question. Uh, what ha- is a successful customer outcome? Has it changed? A hundred percent. If you assume your value proposition from before coronavirus is the same to today, I'm willing to challenge you to say that it is not. I think there's a clear dividing line for all of us, which is BCAC, before coronavirus, after coronavirus. And for me, when it hit, so I'm based in Toronto, Canada, that was March 11th. When March 11th is when they put in the travel advisory ban. That was when they can't started all the cancellation of professional sports. By March 13th, all of my speaking had been canceled for the upcoming year. And we started seeing the layoffs on the 16th and 17th the following week. And and it just leveled. Everything fell. And to your point, it is uh, there is fear in this. I think there's two key issues that are psychologically and uh, business-wise um, impacting our customers. What's so key here is this is not a traditional crisis. It's a health crisis. So on the psychological side, it's like we've been squished down Maslow's hierarchy of needs and we are scared. And you can see it, especially in North America, the anxiety that goes on with the social unrest and rioting. We can see when a CEO makes a bonehead move, how damaging it can be. Uh, the best example I've got of that is CrossFit. Did you see uh, what happened to Greg Glassman? No, please share. So CrossFit is is if you is the sport, obviously, but it's owned by a single organization. It was a private privately held organization, and all the CrossFit affiliates worldwide are essentially licensees. And the founder replied uh, in the height of the the George Floyd riots that were going on in the United States. He replied to a Black Lives Matter tweet and said, "It's like Floyd 19." And it was a vaguely racist tweet. Nobody understood why. And he just let it sit there. Within 24 hours, he'd lost their title sponsors with Reebok and Rogue. They lost 10% of their affiliates worldwide within two days. And the uh, social media and the, uh, the backlash was just astronomical. And it was so significant that within two weeks, this owner of his own business was forced to sell the company and exit. Wow just to save this thing. And, and this was a, uh, a privately held business that, uh, and, and quite significant. But one tweet uh, took this. And why? Because the psychological issues are so significant. So we have that part. And then the second issue is our businesses. There's very few businesses that have not been affected by this pandemic. There's a spectrum from leading to bleeding. If you're selling uh, personal protective equipment, sure, you're doing great. If you're in restaurants and hospitality, you're bleeding. But most of us, were somewhere in the middle. So you have these two different issues. So if you're selling to your customers, you have to actually understand what are their needs? What are they facing from a business perspective and an emotional perspective and be hyper-relevant and hyper empathetic to that. And that shifting of your is going to require a significant shifting of your value proposition. And so how can you speak to your customers as of today? Because if you do it wrong, you'll come across as opportunistic and icky. And your brand is not going to survive this thing if it's perceived as opportunistic or icky. Just look at CrossFit. It's just boom, done in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of people on LinkedIn in New Zealand. I'm seeing a significantly loud number of people 
on LinkedIn who are going through what I call the grieving process. There's five stages to the grieving process, and those first two are well on show for a lot of businesses. They've lost the status quo, and they're still in some cases in denial. Certainly in New Zealand they are, where we haven't been directly affected by the illness. There's not many people here who know somebody, unless they come from overseas, who has been affected because it's been such a small number. Um, those leaders who are in some cases calling it the pandemic. We have, a, we have a, a like like you guys do in, in Canada, we have a more socialist approach to government than, let's say, the US, your southern cousins do. Um, they're accusing Jacinda, for instance, of being part of a socialist, socialist cabal who is putting this fake pandemic into the world. What damage do you think those people could be doing to their brands? I think it's, um, I think, this is a, a really tricky situation. My general advice goes this way. A brand should stay out of politics as well as many of the rights issues. But I'm going to put a caveat to that. So in general uh, perspective, if you're a smaller mid-sized company and it does not connect to your core values, then just keep your mouth shut. It's okay if you're as an entrepreneur to have this. But do not put it on Facebook. Don't like keep it private and don't because you don't know what backlash that could happen and you don't want to trigger something. So that would be nine times out of ten. Keep your mouth shut. Don't put it out online. And I know in our age of social media that uh, doesn't go so well. But I can tell you, I had one conversation with uh, an entrepreneur and he was going on uh, of a silly story. Uh, and I said, just never repeat that. Like, uh, like it was, it was, and to be blunt, it was, he was saying all lives matter and telling that story. I'm like, just don't care. You're wrong, but never repeat that. If it goes online, we're going to, we, we can't ever work it together. It's that kind of uh, thing. Here's the caveat. If you have a value-based brand or you want to do this from a provocative perspective, it can make a huge advantage. Just remember going back to, uh, uh, Christmas of 2000 and I want to say 2018, I think it was. No, sorry, 2019, when Nike ran ads all over the United States with uh, Kaepernick. Yeah. And it was very polarizing because half the United States, it seemed, was all up in arms, and then the other half was all for it. The thing is, Nike was, was taking a very provocative stance because they are going after uh, upper, uh, like, are wealthy urban teens who believe what they are saying. So that controversial play gave them a huge amount of lift. They had huge uh, sales and their stock soared when the rest of the market was tanking because they spoke to a need that identified their values with their target market. So if you are going to play in that game, it's risky and you better know, you better be very value purpose driven Versus just saying it's uh, like Bill Gates is funding the, the whole COVID thing. If you're spinning conspiracy theories, <laughs> yeah. that's branding uh, no-nos. Yeah, that sounds. that seems to me to be branding suicide in some ways. Just go back. What did uh, CrossFit do? Just take that story, look back at it again and again. One tweet, an entrepreneur was forced to sell a $100 million business. Yeah, that is a that is a cataclysmic um, mistake by 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 that gentleman for sure. Um, I, it's got me thinking about how involved should I be getting in the political conversations. I mean, I try and come in from the angle 
that I, I take your point. <laughs> um, I come from the angle that certainly from the media's perspective, I've come from a, from a, from quite a long history of media background, and I do know that for many media brands, the consumer of their media is the least important customer. The most important customer is their advertiser. And so what they're trying to do at the moment in a country like ours, which needs some united data-driven reporting, we're getting a lot of clickbait, a lot of calls for when is Jacinda going to resign? And I'm not going to go on about this because people can look online and see the, what you've now maybe pointed out could be some mistakenly um, written posts. Um, but I come from the angle that what's best for their customer. And so with that perspective and your short understanding of it, um, am I making a mistake? Should I stay the heck out of this or should I be pointing out the, the, the things, the mistakes that companies and brands are making when they're trying to engage with their customers? I think you. I, I can't comment specifically on your strategy because I haven't read the post. But let me take a step back to the more strategic things. With so on my website stickybranding.com, there's a free ebook called Crisis Marketing, and this is sharing the lessons from the first four months of the pandemic. And on the the very first thing, what we have been asking over and over again throughout this crisis has been three questions. Number one, which is who needs your expertise and your resources the most right now. And then how can you proactively sell and get this out to the right people? And also, how do you package your products in a way that are going to be relevant for people? And I'm sorry, I just butchered all my three questions. But it's uh, the first one is uh, who needs you and your expertise the most right now? And so I think this is all about need. When you are talking to people today, how can you be helpful? How can you be generous? How can you speak to their need? And so having a conversation related to politics is not bad if it relates to your customer's needs in terms of how to navigate a situation or something that's going to be relevant and meaningful for them. And so taking this time right now is keep your opinion. Your opinions are very powerful because they allow you to be interesting. But if your customers are are in fear be sensitive and empathetic to whatever their situation is. So if you use that need test, how can I be of service, then that gives you a much better guiding compass on how to uh, navigate. What do I talk about? Who do I talk to? What do we do? What channels do we use to engage? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to take a positive mm -hmm. line as opposed to a critical line in these conversations. And I hope that most of the time I managed to nail that. Um, and I, I, I do find that sometimes it's quite self-selecting as well. And so I know that there are companies out there that clearly do not understand their customer and have no real desire to. And so I kind of think that there's some really strong learnings that the rest of industries can learn from and apply to their own situation. So I'm, I'm hoping and I'll probably be going back through all of my posts after this conversation, Jeremy, just to make sure that I haven't got, haven't made too many own goals. <laughs> well, it's you're building relationships. So again, let's go back to the principles of sticky branding. That if who, how do you get your customers to know you, like you, and trust you? And that's about sharing parts of yourself. And especially as a small business, you are your business. And so you know your audience and they will tell you and speak to you. Uh, and it's that connection and that empathy uh, where I, I believe people are making mistakes right now is they are tone deaf. 
They're not paying attention to the need of their customers and they're missing the mark. And they might believe something and they might believe it strongly, but they're not, their, their empathy is missing. And so we need to take this, but at the same time, you have a huge opportunity because if your competitors or your or other firms in your industry are doing this, this is, becomes your opportunity because watching the mistakes your competitors make are your opportunities to gain rise up. Remember, we are going through this unprecedented time. Everything's breaking. Everything's changing. So how can you be relevant, helpful, and how do you move fast? And when you take those steps back, you go, wow, this is really a freeing moment that someone else can be a jerk and I can create a customer experience that is helpful, empathetic, and relevant. That's fascinating. Um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking in all sorts of tangents and uh, I'll be having some conversations with certain people when I get off, uh, when, when, when I start the rest of my day. Um, if, there were, if there were three things that you would, before we get onto that, you talked about empathy. And empathy is so key, but those I'm 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 picking that those that maybe have a let's say a natural dearth of empathy may find it even harder during this pandemic to increase empathy because they're under so much stress. They're under so much financial stress, they may be under mental stress from being locked in their house worrying about what their systems, their processes may do under the, this added pressure. How can we systemize empathy into our companies to get over the individual nature of, let's face it, some people at the top of um, companies' hierarchies are not the most empathic people. They care about the bottom line. They care about the shares. And that is why CX can often be a difficult conversation to have with those companies because it doesn't seem to be relevant to the business needs that they're always centrally focusing on. Mm -hmm. Well, I think empathy is, is a choice. Uh, again, like so much of this, it is a choice. Now, the first thing is how you respond to this crisis. The, the message that I have been bringing forward again and again has been that the entrepreneurs that are doing the best, the leaders that are doing the best, the teams that are doing the best have a warrior mindset. And what I mean by that is they're conquering their amygdala. You've got your fight, flight, or freeze response. So it's that willingness to fight. I remember the beginning of this crisis, I would say, F this virus. We are going to rise up. We are going to conquer the obstacles. We are going to have our best year ever. And I'd get all riled up and angry about it. But And it was coming from a place of fear and, and, and hubris and just like that punch necessary. But that punch element was so important to be able to be proactive. But the empathy became the other key part to this. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Central Smith is one of Canada's largest ice cream manufacturers. They primarily focus on the food services space. So if you've had ice cream in a Canadian restaurant, chances are you've had Central Smith's ice cream. Well, the problem that happened, though, as you can take that statement, is when the lockdowns happened, the restaurant industry was basically closed and a big chunk of their business was basically turned off. And so they had all this overstock of ice cream. And so two of their young employees, Megan and Jillian, got the idea to say, okay, we've got all this ice cream. Why don't we put up a Shopify store? We will offer curbside pickup, and then we'll get the word out by engaging the local chamber of commerce and a couple food bloggers. And they didn't expect much of it, but the, the, the management said, you got an idea, go for it. 
And so Jillian and Megan put up the Shopify store in a week. They got the, 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 the partners engaged. The first week this store was online and open, generated more sales than their retail store did in a month. So five days beat 30 days. They, so then Jillian and Megan leveled up again. So they, put, they went from the overstock, which was six flavors, to all 100 flavors. And they put all that up online. And the next week, sales rose. And then they said, well, we've got these big tubs, these 11.4 liter tubs that aren't selling to the trade. Why don't we sell those? Customers would show up and they put these two giant tubs in the back of their trunk. You think of it, the, the joke they had internally was the 19 and COVID is going to mean something very different at the end of this thing. And, and so they, they kept doing this and, and sales have been progressively going there. All sides of the business did this. They were doing this with safety, distribution, uh, retail sales. And what Brett Stevenson, their COO, said is they have transitioned from an and-or culture to an and-and culture, where someone says, this is my job, and how else can I help? And that first part of empathy came comes in in making that choice to empower your people to listen to have a voice. The second part of empathy, though, is about looking at your customers and asking, what do they need? So if I go back to those questions, I'll get it right this time. Who needs my company and its expertise the most right now? What products or services can we deliver to solve a real problem that is valued? And then how do we proactively sell and deliver our services to the people with the most need? And by focusing on that need again and again and again, shifts your mindset to what can I sell to how can I help? And when you're of service, you're never opportunistic, Ricky, but you're also listening. So your assumption, uh, the thing that's happening with this year is our assumptions have to change as the lockdown shift. So our assumptions at the beginning of the crisis are different than they are going into the fall. And so what that means for us is that we have to constantly be touching base with our customers. And by listening and being of service, you will by default be empathetic. You've got me thinking about my own current situation, and I'm pretty happy with number one and two. And what, you know, that, that, but that all important number three um, is something that that's probably where we're failing. We, we changed our business um, where COVID happened. We were, we were setting up, apart from the consultancy side of things, we were also setting up a learning management system for small to medium sized businesses for customer service training, because we found in New Zealand, Bizarrely, very little customer service training actually takes place in small businesses. There is this feeling that, well, we're hiring people who are good at dealing with people. They've been in roles where surely they must have been trained previously. So we can take these experienced people, deploy them to the front line, and we're going to be delivering good customer service. The reason why, another reason why they didn't go into training was because. They didn't have the people or the time to cover their teams when they were off training. There was a there was a, um, a car dealership on the North Shore in Auckland who we spoke to who had 52 members of staff, a really, really thriving business. Um, he had the paradox. He knew that if he sent anybody away for training, say he let eight people who were part of his very tight um, agile team away, he would see customer service drop because of the extra stretch that it would put on all of the people trying to cover. So he was in this position knowing, well, if I know I need to do some training, but if I don't do training, if I do do training, then I'm going to have worse customer service. So we said, why not 
utilize micro learning. They, the, we, we'd got this, we'd got an MVP. We had about 10 companies trialing it. We were ready to go. COVID hit. Well, who wants to focus on that at the moment? So we brought it back down. We considered that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We started to get the insight into what people found um, to be important to them in, the, in their customer experience and found out that we needed to deliver really fast, quick refreshment in health and safety when it came to dealing with employees and customers. Because the, well, I think one of the worst things that could certainly happen to a New Zealand business at the moment is for a laissez-faire attitude to lead to a new cluster starting at that company. Um, there's one company at the moment in New Zealand that I'm sure has had some damage done to its brand. There's probably two that I can think of because of that. So we, we by repurposing the learning management platform, we believe that we've become a much more useful product. Then we had 102 days of community transitions and we thought, well, no, now it's time to focus the customer service training again. We started doing some um, exciting teaser campaigns, building excitement. The day before we were going to launch, we got the four community trans transmissions. So immediately we thought we're going to be so tone deaf if we go out there and say, hey, everybody, let's focus on customer service training and communication skills when every single business owner was going to be looking at, damn, we're going to have to shut down for a couple of weeks or we're going to have to go back to working from home 100% of the time. So I'm hoping that we've we've been following probably accidentally your first your one and two points there um but you're missing the third the thing i'm concerned on is are you are you selling or, or like are you taking the proactive steps to sell even when there's a lockdown we set up one one, one area of our um journey that was was weak when it came to the learning management system was the onboarding because it had to be fully manual and for sole traders or independent people that's more than just a few clicks to get to your affordable, effective training. Um, so we spent we spent a few weeks um, polishing a Shopify shopfront that we hadn't deployed up to that point. We did realise that our systems, unfortunately, weren't allowing multiple signups. But then again, for large companies, we much we believe that we're much more of a um, that side of the business is much more of a learning concierge service. It's like let's get you the basics and then let's discuss. What other areas of your business you're not getting trained in that may directly or indirectly affect the customer? And so that wasn't so much of a problem. We launched that Shopify site a couple of weeks ago, but we haven't proactively, we haven't started any kind of outreach program or to, or, or to get in touch. It's very much been let's get some social media noise, let's, uh, let's introduce people in a soft non-pushy way to this solution but I am wondering and I think you're identifying that that third point is where we need to be focusing our time so how do we do that in a COVID world where there's lots of stress and people are not enjoying hearing from strangers on the phone as much I think that's the that's the self-limiting belief I believe people are expecting and open to conversation right now so the first thing I would say is that if you don't blow your own horn, nobody will. And in a crisis or a recession, the number one thing that you need is cash. And the only way you're going to get cash is by selling stuff. 
So if you wait for something to happen, you're going to burn through your cash and things are going to get worse. So the whole point of crisis marketing is being hyper proactive to sell something that is relevant. And so the way you overcome the ickiness is by being empathetic and clear of how you can be of service. So you've got something that is hyper relevant right now. The issue then comes down to our marketing channels actually don't work very well. So what's happened in pretty much every organization that's in a, a B2B sale is that middle management and procurement have lost their autonomy. So decisions that used to be taken place by managers now require executive or business owner approval. And what that means is business owners are hyper busy. They are not on social media. They're not on LinkedIn. They're not on Instagram. They're not even Googling all that much. And so what the sales process looks like today is very much what it looked like 10 years ago or 15 years ago before social media was even significant. And so we have to look at more of the question of who owns the need, who owns the issue, and then Focus on executive access, which could be how do you pick up the phone and call them? How do you uh, reach out to them on LinkedIn? How can you get a referral? Uh, it, and, or maybe it's speaking at conferences that those individuals are at or whatever it is. It's thinking differently. It's who owns the need and how can I speak to them? And it's and then the sales process, it's very much, um, it's very decisive in how you sell. So when you're selling to managers, it's soft, it's nice, it's content oriented, it's white papers, and yeah, it's gross. The when you're selling to executives, you lead with a hypothesis: Do you have or face this business issue? And and if so, how is it impacting you? Okay, if, and it's a, it's very clear. Do you have the issue? Yes or no? If yes, here's what we have to offer. Here's the value delivered. This is what it does from an ROI perspective. This is what it does from a business perspective. Here is the next step. And it's a, it's a sales conversation that's very blunt and decisive. You're leading with the hypothesis, presenting a solution. If the hypothesis doesn't work, boogie on and go find another customer. And, and so you have a very fast sales cycle. But for most people, it's really scary because now you're calling the CEO of a company that you might never have called on before, which means you got one chance to do it well. But here's the thing. Executive access, according to our research, executive access has gone up 40% through this crisis. Business owners and executives are taking calls. They're having conversations because that's how they learn. We are all in this unprecedented time. So if you can bring them a value, so if you can talk to them about customer, ser customer service or learning or solving a problem that's related to what they're facing today, I guarantee they will give you time. Well, that is such a fantastic insight that I will be going away and thinking of those very words that you said, who owns the need and who owns the issue? And I think anybody selling into a... B2B environment where there are multiple stakeholders really needs to understand that. And thanks so much for sharing that insight with me. I think that's going to be really valuable in the, in the coming weeks ahead. Well, I'm glad. Keep me posted on it. Uh, I'd love to hear your response on it. Here would be the marketing. I'll put one more small tip on it quickly. From a marketing context, ask this question. Who knows about a need first? If you can understand who the stakeholders are around that decision maker, that's actually where you can do your content media, social media, and uh, PPC advertising because they're the ones 
that will likely be exploring for options before you. And those are your influencers or centers of influence that can refer you to the person with needs. Oh my goodness, my my meeting today with Francine is going to be rich um, based on this conversation. I'll be making sure that she listens to the unedited version beforehand. Um, thank you so much. Um, before we end, um, I I wanted to add something to our podcast at the end of everyone. I'm, I'm keen to ask you two very simple questions. Um, first of all, what's the very best customer experience that you're currently enjoying with those companies that you are loyal to which brands you're loyal to mm, what a fantastic question um you know the uh the it's a small small one but it's been some of the local restaurants that i have been loyal to for a long time and so my wife and i will do date night every friday that sort of thing and uh what i have appreciated is their businesses are really suffering uh right now but to be able to call them up, to be able to have an order, the, the extra care they take, the support, their staff, their happiness, their mindset, um, it's its really been uh, quite remarkable uh, doing this new world of eating out. Uh, and you can see the difference. There, there's two companies that I have in mind in the Toronto area, Oliver and Bonaccini, which is a, a large restaurant group chain there. They've done it excellently. Uh, and also just a sushi restaurant that I love called Mats Masayuki. And they have really leveled up their uh, delivery side of their business, but also their customer service, email communication. It's been a, it's been really nice to see. And I do want to support them just because I know they're suffering. Excellent. Well, hopefully anybody in the Toronto area, that is a fantastic shout out for those restaurants. And, you know, there's nothing better than, a, than an advocate um, explaining why we should be um, visiting or using these companies. Um, you don't have to mention any names here, but my final question would be, what's the very worst customer experience that you are seeing or, or experiencing at the moment? Hmm. What? You know what it is, and it's more uh, a marketing thing than any, but it's been the tone-deaf marketing that I see on social media, in my inbox, the persistent emails that are saying, like the classic is, in these trying times or these difficult times, it's, it's using COVID as a reason to bombard our inboxes. And every time I see that, uh, like if there's one thing if you're talking around – in context, like what McKinsey does in terms of their, their, their coronavirus response center and the content they have or Harvard Business Review does, it's exceptional. But the, the marketer that's saying we're open for business, that kind of stuff, it's so grating that uh, I have never unsubscribed to so much content in my life that companies I have worked with, I will not go back to as a result of some of their, uh, their messaging. Yeah, there's there's one brand in particular that's guilty of that at the moment in Auckland. Um, we're all getting text messages from the government and keeping us up to date. However, there is a large entertainment group that keeps telling me that what the news that I've already received is, and it just feels like they're trying to have a conversation with me that there, there really is no purpose to that conversation. Um, I'm only keeping subscribed because I'm finding it quite entertaining because I'm viewing it from 
the customer experience angle. Um, but I completely take your point. I think that all of all of us, um, all of our listeners, um, need to bear that in mind. I love the way that, that you've brought up the the concept of being tone deaf. Um, I think there was an element of that previously before COVID. My my father passed away at the beginning of the year, and I was amazed at some of the sales tactics that people were using over that time. Don't expect them to understand what's going on, but when you explain what's happening, it was like, I'm sorry about that. I'll give you a call in a couple of weeks to talk about what I wanted to talk to you about. It's like, that is really tone deaf, mate. I'm not sure you'd be doing that to your... um, Do you know a lady called Jean Bliss? She's a she's a fantastic CX writer. She's one of the the uh, the authors that really got me hooked into this this fast growing discipline. And the book that I'd recommend um, is mm. Would You Do This to Your Mother? Okay. And I think you'd find it really fascinating because it really is that. How tone deaf would you be with your nearest and dearest? And I think as businesses, we have to start seeing our customers who are already realizing because of media stories how very valuable we are. We know that we're needed by these companies that are struggling and are trying to survive in the world. So if they're not treating us as if we are a valued member of the team almost, then I I think that that tone-deaf nature will have a really negative impact on the long-term growth of those companies. I wholeheartedly agree. And it's so – like what you went through from your father, that's – the. it's so gross and it's sad. Uh, and it's not, I don't even think that's tone deaf. I think it's just wildly inappropriate. Um, like it's, it's cold. And, and that to me, it makes me angry to, to, to see people behave that way. Cause it's so selfish and, 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 and it's, it's just it'll get me spinning on that. On the realm of the, of the coronavirus side of things though, if you don't get it at this stage in the game, come on, like, Every person, every company from around the world is going through the exact same thing at the exact same time. If it's been going on in Asia since December, it's been in North America since March, we have all been dealing with this to varying degrees everywhere. This is probably the only global shared experience that we've ever truly had. Maybe we can go back to the world wars, but I don't even think it even was that consistent. So this to me is, if you don't get it at this point, then just keep doing what you're doing and let's support the competitors that uh, are really truly growing the remarkable brands. Cause this is the moment that the good people shine. That's both employees and companies. And, and, and we can see that they're doing great work. And when you're helpful and generous and empathetic to the people around you, I guarantee it, you're going to grow not only a great brand, you're going to grow just great relationships, loyalty and affinity. And that's just good business. It certainly is, mate. And look, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have I could talk for hours. I wish I was Joe Rogan because we could do a three-hour show and get away with it, but we've already gone over the hour. So look, before I go, how can people get in contact with you? Is there any way that we can help your business? Can we share this very important crisis marketing ebook that you've got out there? I'd love to put it in the comments when we um, when we share the podcast. So yeah, how can we help and how can we get people connected with you? Thank you, Brent. I, I appreciate it. And I appreciate everything that you're doing today too. Um, 
the best way to find me is just Google sticky branding. Uh, you know, the website stickybranding.com. I'm on all the social networks at sticky branding or on LinkedIn, uh, Jeremy Miller and the book is sticky branding as well. So I'm using that, that brand across everything. So best way to do is find that on my website, you will find the crisis marketing ebook. Uh, it's very purpose driven for me. It's sharing the best practices of how to, to recover from this very trying time. So it's free. Take it, share it. I'd love to, to get the word out. And then if anyone has any questions, feel free to direct message me, any of the social networks or even email. Um, we are really uh, looking at this as a, a shared experience. How do we help each other uh, grow our businesses right now? And as a community, the more we can engage with each other, the better. So I'm always open and available. Could we run some kind of competition um, from the, for those people that are listening to the show Finding you, no doubt, incredibly fascinating. How about we gave away one of each of your books to somebody? Let's do it. I will put up brand new name and sticky branding to anyone in the world. Cool. So we'll. Uh, so what are the conditions of the competition? How are we going to give them away? You got an idea for that? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we set up a um, a link to the ebook for the crisis marketing? Everybody who downloads it from that link goes into the draw and we will uh we will we will announce um the winners i'm super stoked let's get it done brilliant hey again thanks jeremy and um i can't wait to talk again in the future you go well um and stay safe in this unprecedented year that we're all experiencing thanks again thank you i'd like to take this opportunity to thank you very much for listening to today's episode hope you found it interesting. Um, as a further sign of gratitude, we'd like to pass on a 30% discount to all listeners um, on the HTO Educate Learning Management System. We, uh, we've, we've launched it recently um, with a base level of um, courses that really focus on helping companies get through this really tough year, um, looking at mental health management, looking at um, managing virtual teams, setting up home offices. There's a, a, a very strong focus on health and safety as well, because we certainly believe that at the moment, your customers, the very base level of customer service that they're expecting is to be safe when they're doing business with you. Um, so, so please have a look um, at the website, see whether it's something that could be of value to you and your teams in a year where it's very difficult to, to find time to train and to refresh skills. Um, and we'll put the we'll put the address in the notes um, to this episode, um, along with the, the discount code, which is HTO Podcast Thirty. But yeah, that will be in the notes. So once again, thank you, and I look forward to talking with you on the next podcast. <laughs>